I'll be reading from Acts 24, the first nine verses, Acts 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with a certain attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. And after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. And we wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. And by examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. I'll pray. Father, we um, look to you again just humbly that you would instruct us and work in our hearts, God, as, as we desire and as we need and as you want to do, God, that we would just be receptive to you, instructed from your word and by your spirit, and that you would use this time, God, just to strengthen and encourage our hearts in Christ and to bring about greater conformity to Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Nice to see you all again this morning. Um, we are coming to a quick conclusion here to Acts, and Paul now is in, we've seen, he's in jail. He's being held on trumped-up charges. He's done nothing wrong, just pure false accusations against him. And yet Jesus is in control, and he's going to use this to have Paul be able to speak at a level of society that he has not yet been able to, kings and governors, and perhaps even Caesar himself, because he's going to end up in Rome, having appealed to Caesar coming up soon in these chapters. There's probably not anything much harder to face in life than just injustice and false accusations. And life is certainly full of them. And we, we all go through it, and we know how difficult, all, difficult it is not to defend ourselves and to forgive when it happens, and yet it is a constant aspect of life. It's not unique to us as Christians. It's something that Jesus suffered. It's something that all people suffer, believer and unbeliever alike. And Paul now, um, he has the same humanity that we all have. And, and I just find it um, amazing that he can stand and listen to these false accusations against him, remain calm, and give a very reasonable um, defense to what is being falsely charged. And I, I want us to keep in mind, as we, as we think about how Paul is responding and how God is using this, that probably the controlling thing that's happening for Paul to keep him under control and not um, to be overreacting to, to these false charges is what Jesus said back in the previous chapter, in chapter 23, verse 11, where it says, But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. And so, although everything that's happening is wrong, 
and he is powerless to do anything about it, and he is having to, to listen to the lies of a top attorney and stand before a governor who is absolutely corrupt, he can be calm and be at peace because Jesus is truly in control. And he's promised him, you will witness um, not just at Jerusalem as you have, but also in Rome. And so he knows that God is surely moving him toward that end, and he can remain um, at rest that God is in control. So this um, um, lawyer they've hired, he's a skilled orator. He's a master at logic and presenting cases, and he does really, um, by all accounts, a, a very good job presenting these trumped-up charges. And so he's got three things that he's accusing Paul of. The first one seems kind of petty, but he says, um, after flattering Felix for a long time here, and Felix was not a man to be flattered, well, historians tell us he was a slave, a literal slave, who had risen to the level of governor, and we don't know of anybody else in the Roman Empire that that ever happened. And his, um, his detractors said that he actually... Um, never got over being a slave, that he ruled as a slave. He, he was a, just a base man who was not concerned about justice and was just a, a self-promoting guy, um, had been married, um, married three different women who were all royalty. Why they married him, nobody knows. And they, he would just use them to climb the ladder. And once he was in a position of power, he abused it. He, he murdered people. Uh, he was not um, a good guy, to say the least. And Paul has to stand before him. And so you've got a corrupt attorney and a corrupt governor who's acting as judge. And Paul has to stand before both of them. It would look as though he doesn't have a prayer. But again, the Lord is in control. And so the charges are, in first, um, picking it up in verse 5, For we have found this man, number one, to be a real pest. Well, we all have real pests in our lives. If you grew up in a family with any siblings, um, you might have said that about your little brother or your little sister. Um, if you are, ever went to college and lived in a dorm, you probably had a room full of pests, um, uh, a dorm full of pests. I know I certainly did in different um, dorm experiences I've had. But that's not a reason to be in jail, you would think, and certainly not a reason to be executed. But actually, this is a very significant charge, because in what way is he a pest? He says, he stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. And that's significant. One thing these governors, no matter how corrupt they were, they wanted peace. And Rome really, really stressed peace. So Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And, and, and nobody wanted to be guilty of allowing insurrections to arise under their jurisdiction. And so as soon as they start with this, Felix, man, you know, his antennas are up and he's going, whoa, this is a guy who stirs up riots. This is a guy who's, who's causing trouble all over the place. And he goes, I can't let this go. So they set this up so that these would each be charges worthy of death and in the hope that Felix would execute him right on the spot. And so that's the first charge. He is a pest who is stirring up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. That is, that is um, a charge worthy of death. Secondly, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's not calling it the way as it was in the previous chapter, so he's kind of toning down exactly who these people are, but he calls it a sect or a cult. 
And that's, that is significant because the only people who have been allowed to not worship the emperor are the Jewish people. And so Tertullius is saying Paul doesn't fit within the carve-out of religious exception, that what he is, is leading is not Judaism. It is not what the Jewish people believe, and therefore, again, worthy of condemnation. And then verse 6, the third thing, and he even tried to desecrate the temple. Now that it shouldn't be a big deal to a Roman, except that the Romans, in carving out um, um, the Jewish faith for separate um, freedom, they had also said that if they gave them permission that if anyone desecrated the temple, they could be executed on the spot. And so Paul, in, in the false charge, desecrated the temple or tried to, and when arrested by the Jews, they were um, wanting to, to kill him, and Lysus, the commander, intervened, and then he says, by examining Paul yourself, you'll find that all these things are true, when they're all lies. Paul didn't desecrate the temple, had no intention of doing that. And so then it says, and when the governor had nodded for him to speak, so he asked him no questions, he just gives Paul the opportunity to make his own defense. And so Paul begins to speak in verse 10. Doesn't flatter Felix, but he, gives, but he does say, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to, to Jerusalem to worship. Twelve days. What's the significance of that? It's hard to make, to form a riot and an insurrection in only 12 days. And part of that 12 days, he's been sitting in jail. And so he's actually only in Jerusalem for seven days before the Jews tried to kill him. Not enough time to cause the problems that he's being accused of. And then he says, and then verse 12 and neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying out even a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. They didn't even find me talking to anybody, much less trying to cause a riot anywhere. And so he says these are just absolutely false charges. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. They can't prove them. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So when it comes to this so-called sect, Paul says, let me be clear, I don't believe anything different than what they believe. So how is that a sect? Now, he doesn't say that Christianity is Judaism and Judaism is Christianity. But he's saying there is no contradiction between Christianity and Judaism. That I believe the same Bible, the same way that they do. The difference is Paul believes that the prophecies concerning the Messiah have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and the Jews don't yet believe that, these Jews at least. So he says, I'm a Jew, in effect. I came to the temple to worship in the temple as, the, as a Jew. And he says, and I believe the same Jewish scriptures as they do. I believe the same doctrine that they believe. And he says, it all comes down to, 
um, that there is no separation doctrinally, theologically, from what I believe and what the Jews believe, so they can't accuse me of being a, a leader of a sect. In verse 16, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. So I'm not an insurrectionist. I'm not a rebel. I live before God, fearing God, wanting to walk with Him blamelessly. Verse 17. Now after several years, I came to bring alms. Not did I come to defile the temple. I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, not causing an insurrection, not taking Gentiles into the temple, but I'm in the temple off making offerings, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were certain Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council other than this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them. And I don't think this was a misdeed. He's just speaking sarcastically. For the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. Now, there's a couple things here that are interesting about this very short and direct defense. One, it's not, um, it's not emotionally charged. It's reasonable. So that tells me that he is under the control by, of Christ and is governed by the peace of God in these very, very difficult circumstances. He could have talked about the high priest ordering him hit on the mouth, didn't say a word about it. He could have said in the Ten Commandments, commandment number nine is not to bear false witness, and these men have done nothing but bear false witness against me. I've been keeping the law. I've been keeping what the Word of God says. These are the violators of Scripture. Scripture says, do not bear false witness, and they are bearing false witness against me. If I'd been standing there, that's how I would argue my case. Just turn, the, turn it around and, and, and show what they are doing, how they have been wrong. Hit me on the mouth. Found nothing wrong with me. Bearing false witness. Paul says nothing about that. Just keeps it to the charges and he's clear and simple. This reminds me of when um, Peter was brought in before the Jerusalem council, and they were all fired up about him having gone to Cornelius and eaten with the Gentiles, and how he very quietly, reasonably, worked through their objections, and, and they had to just say, God has been at work here. We can't underestimate just how just the simple way of, of standing before our enemies without fear, in calmness, is in itself a testimony to the fact that Jesus is alive. And he's not only in control of this world, but he's in control of us. It's a big deal. So, Felix, um, he may be corrupt, and he may have the, the heart of a slave, but he's not stupid. And it says in verse 22, Felix having a more exact knowledge about the way. So he knows what's going on. He knows about Judaism. He knows about Christianity. He put them off saying, when Lysus the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Well, Lysus doesn't have anything to do with it. 
They brought in Lysus and made a false accusation against him as well. He didn't do anything wrong. He saved Paul's life. And, and Felix doesn't need to hear from him, but he's just wanting to delay. And he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. So we believe that Paul had, was not confined to a cell. He was, he was in the, the barracks of the soldiers, probably was chained to a soldier the whole time. He was essentially a free man while living um, under the, the um, arrest of, um, of the Romans. Still not great. And it's going to last for two years. Verse 27. After two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Again, just straight up wrong. Everything about this. Felix knows Paul's done nothing wrong, but he's wanting money, and he's wanting to appease the Jews. So it says in verse... um, 24, and some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, so he's left and come back again, who was a Jewish, Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. And at the same time, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. And then after two years, he left him in prison. So let me just work back through this a bit. False witnesses, delayed justice, desire for money, um, and having to, to deal with a man who has no interest really in the truth, he's just corrupt and self-serving. His wife, Drusilla, a Jewess, his third wife, she was 19 at this time, and this is not her first marriage. She had already been betrothed to one man, and that didn't happen, and then she married another man, and Felix um, talked her into leaving her husband and marrying him, when she was only 16. She comes from the family of the Herods. Herod the Great was her great-grandfather who who tried to have Jesus killed when the wise men showed up. Herod Antipas was his great-uncle who killed John the Baptist. Herod Agrippa I was his father who killed the Apostle James. And Herod Agrippa II, who's going to show up in the next chapter, was his brother um, and, um, and Bernice, who's also going to show up, was, his, was her sister. She had some interest in Paul and wanted to hear what he had to say, but there's no record that after this first conversation that she continued to come back and hear. And the subject of, their, of his conversation, Paul's, was, it says, um, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And it scared Felix. So he said, go away, and I'll find time. When I find time, I'll summon you. I want us to look over at John chapter 16. Just hold your finger here in Acts 24. John 16. Jesus is saying what is going to happen after he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell 
believers. He says in Acts 16, verse 7, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now the Holy Spirit has always been in the world because he is omnipresent. But this he's, ta he's talking about a unique way in which he's going to be here. So just as he, in a unique way, led Israel through the wilderness. In a unique way, he's going to come and indwell people and be in the world in a way that he has not been before. And what will be the consequence of him coming? Verse 8. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So that's going to be the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I believe, in the Christian. Because the Spirit of God comes to live in us, that this will happen through us just by virtue of being indwelt by the Spirit. And as we walk with Christ, walk according to the Spirit, these three things are going to happen. The Spirit, in consequence to being in us, is going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Paul obviously knew that passage of Scripture. Now, it doesn't say anything about Paul speaking to Felix about sin. It says he spoke to him about righteousness and self-control and judgment. But it seems that Paul is doing basically what Jesus outlined was going to happen there in John 16. When the Philippian jailer wanted to be saved, he said, what must I do to be saved? Remember what, G what Paul said? Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved. So this is not Paul giving the gospel, per se. I think this is Paul setting it up for the gospel. This is maybe what we could call pre-evangelism. This man is not going to believe in Jesus until he sees his need for Jesus. And so he talks about righteousness, and then self-control. And then judgment is coming. And it scared him. When he talked about righteousness, I believe he talked about the righteousness of God. And he talked about probably the righteousness of man. Very basic stuff, but it's things that we shouldn't pass over. And I think that even in the context of Bernie Bible Church, these are things that we need to think about. Because I'm, I, I, it never leaves my mind and heart that there may be those People here that come to church all the time, regularly, who have not yet entered into a relationship with Jesus, they've never placed their faith in Christ for eternal life. And that might be because they are trusting in their own righteousness rather than in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We do have a measure of righteousness. I'm not one of those people that says that, that, that we have no righteousness apart from Christ. Because Isaiah says that we do. But Isaiah says that our righteousness, and we do have a righteousness, Isaiah is saying, is as filthy rags. So it does not measure up to the righteousness of God. 
And so for all practical purposes, and being very practical, it does us no good. That our righteousness will never merit the approval of God, will never merit acceptance by God. We fall short of the glory of God. These are things that have to be taught. These are things that need to be taught in the home with our children. We want our kids to be good kids, but we don't want them to think that they can ever be good enough to enter into heaven apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And when they are acting unrighteously, that is an opportunity to point them to the righteousness of God. Not to do better and to be better kids, but to recognize they can never be what God intended for them to be apart from faith in the Lord Jesus. And you can't start too young with your children in doing this. The righteousness of God and how our righteousness falls far short. He spoke to him about self-control. Self-control is a byproduct of righteousness. If we are living a righteous life, which is Christ's life, then we will be living a life of self-control, not a life of selfishness where everything is about me and what I can do, my freedoms, my rights, my liberties, my fulfillment, my happiness. That's not a life of self-control. But a life of self-control where self is under control. Life no longer has to be about me. But I can live for others. I can live a life that's not necessarily personally happy, but I can choose the welfare of others. I can live a life where I'm not seeking my own fulfillment, but I'm seeking the good and welfare of others. Ultimately, only God can bring that kind of self-control to us where our thoughts are under control, our actions are under control, and we're not just animals that are moving at every impulse of every passion and every appetite that comes along. See, Felix had the mind and heart of a slave. And he's a man now with freedom, the freedom and power of a governor, and he's a man who's being controlled by his appetites and his desires. He's not a man who is under control. He's a man who's being controlled by appetites and passions and desires and lust, and he is not under the control of God. And this all makes us think of, well, so what? Well, the so what is there's judgment that's coming. None of us have a righteousness that attains to the righteousness of Jesus. None of us can live the life of self-control that God has designed for a man living under the, the, except that can happen as a man, woman lives under the control of God. And that means that when we stand before God in judgment, we will have no hope and no excuse. Scripture is very clear that there is a judgment coming. Hebrews 9.27 says, For as in, And inasmuch as is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. In the book of Acts, we saw in chapter 17, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. We will not, as Christians, stand before God and be judged. Our works will be, 
our actions will be, but we ourselves have passed out of judgment and into life, Scripture says, when we place our faith in Christ. Because Jesus has taken our judgment. But for all else, everyone else who does not place his faith in Christ, Revelation 20 talks about a great white throne judgment which will take place after the millennial reign of Christ. John wrote and said, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's only one way to have your name in the book of life, and that is to have the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is life. And everyone whose name is not found in the book of life, and that would be because he's never placed his faith in Christ, he will stand before the great white throne and he will be judged and he will be found deficient. Felix hears this and he's scared to death as he should have been. And his response, procrastination. So he says, go away for the present and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. And after two years, he kept him in prison. I kind of thought it was humorous, but sad, probably true to some measure. A little illustration that I found in Warren Wiersbe's um, commentary on this portion of Scripture. And Wiersbe says, the story is told, obviously hypothetical, imaginative, that the devil called four of his top demons together and said, we need to come up with a new strategy. We've got too many people that are coming to faith in Christ. We've got to find a new strategy. What can we do? So the one demon said, I got it. We'll convince people there is no God. The devil said, that won't work. Because all they have to do is look around them, and creation tells them there's a God. So another demon says, I've got it. We'll tell them there is no heaven. The devil says, that won't work. Everybody knows there's life after death, and everybody wants to go to heaven. So the th third demon said, I know, I'll tell them. There's, we'll get, to no, get them to believe there is no hell. And Satan said, they've got a conscience, and they know that judgment is coming. So the fourth demon said, I know. I'll get them to believe that there's no hurry. There's no hurry. You don't need to decide. That was Felix. Just putting it off, putting it off, willing to listen to him, talk theology, sure. Scared. He knows the truth. He knows about the way. He knows about Christianity. Now he's hearing about righteousness and self-control and judgment. It has moved him, stirred him emotionally, and he still says, I'll delay. 
we have no guarantees of what's going to happen in the next day, the next hour. We just no guarantee. This is such a sobering thing to think that we may not have ever placed our faith in Christ for eternal life. And we'd think, I can still have time. I can just wait to my deathbed and cry out to Jesus to save me. One writer says, how do you know you will? You may have more time. Chances are you do. Average lifespan is 70 years. And that, maybe not in the United States, but worldwide, as Scripture said, three score and ten is the average lifespan. And when you look at the average lifespan for all the nations together, it's 70 years. So maybe you still got time. Maybe you're living beyond that already. But how do you know? How do you know that if we put off faith in Christ until the end, that we will place our faith in Christ? Because it doesn't usually work that way. What usually happens is the more truth we hear and the more we harden our hearts to the truth, the harder we become. And it gets harder and harder to simply believe. Now, a word about what Felix was hoping for, money. (laughs) What a scoundrel. Willing to let Paul just sit in prison in the hope of money. And it never came. It's interesting. So I, I was thinking on this, and, and you, you know, all the commentaries I looked at, and I looked at quite a few, every one of them said Paul was looking, I'm sorry, Felix was looking for a bribe from Paul. And they all used the word bribe. Well, I, that's fair enough. It looks like a bribe. That's, I think we would all call it a bribe. But it's interesting, the Scripture doesn't. And the Bible knows the word for bribe. It's all through the Old Testament. But it's not in the New Testament. Strangely, I don't know why. And even here, we think, that's where it ought to occur. The Bible doesn't put the word bribe in there. And when you read about, and I, I tried to do a lot of searching on, on what the Bible says about bribery. And I looked up different articles, and I looked up all the Old Testament references to bribery. Two articles start the very first question, the very first sentence. The Bible is clear that giving or receiving a bribe is evil. And I don't know if I can find the other one. Yeah, it is wrong to take or make bribes. So that's two different articles, the very first sentence. Both taking and receiving bribes, I'm sorry, taking and making bribes is wrong, always wrong. Okay. I've always believed that. So I've got a friend that lives in India. Bribe, bribe, bribe everywhere. He's never, ever given a bribe. I've never heard anybody like that. All the missionaries, all the Christians, that's the, that's the system they live in. They all pay bribes. My friend doesn't. I have another friend with the Lord now. He spent his entire life in Mexico, born to missionary parents, was a missionary himself. He gave bribes all the time. He says, that's the system. And so both of them, godly men. One says, never pay a bribe for any reason whatsoever. Other one says, this is the way it works. Godly men. 
I haven't found in my reading on ethics, I've found almost nothing from, the, from American writers on ethics about bribes. Bribes. Apparently, it's not a problem here in the States. We know that's not true. One guy, Matthew Henry, old set of commentaries, he says, though Paul is to be commended that he would not offer money to Felix, yet I know not whether his friends are to be commended and not doing it for him. Wow. I ought not to bribe a man to do an unjust thing, but if he will not do me justice without a fee, it is but doing myself justice to give it to him. It's interesting. I remember being down in Mexico a number of years ago and um, committed, I will not pay a bribe. We're going taking all these students from his hill down there, and I am not going to give any bribes. I am not going to fall victim to this. Just pull up to the international checkpoint. I've got a school bus loaded with students and tools and all kinds of stuff, loaded to the gills, just packed to the ceiling in the back. And so the immigration customs official, he looks down the bus, sees all their things packed, all the students sitting in there, and he goes, and he steps outside with me, and he goes, okay, you can go now. Puts his hand out and says, and you can tip me. And I said, you mean I can bribe you? And um, he said, if you don't like it, I can just have everything in that bus put out on the street and keep you here. And then you can just load it back yourself. So I caved. <laughs> and I don't think it was more than $5 I gave the guy. And he let us go. I didn't feel very good about myself. Another time in Mexico, um, I was driving the, the school pickup truck. And I went right in front of the big bus depot where everybody gets their buses to go up, fan out all across Mexico. Hundreds of people there, dozens and dozens of buses. And I go right in front of the depot the wrong way on a one-way street. So whistle blows. Young police officer stops me. I get out of the truck. And I look at him. And he looks like he's maybe 18. I mean, he's a young police officer. Hundreds of people on the platform watching because Gringo is, is now <laughs> in trouble. And they're all watching, and you can talk, and they're talking and stuff, and they're laughing, and, I'm, and this guy is sweating. I can see the sweat. He is so nervous. He's thinking, what do I do? And I'm thinking, I've been taught, you know, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's this shame culture and, and the man is going gonna, is gonna to lose face unless I help him out here. And so nobody could see what I, how much money I was giving him, but I reached into my pocket and I picked out, I think it was two $1 bills. And I handed one, and then I handed him the other. And everybody could see it. And everybody starts clapping and laughing and everything. And the cop, he kind of squares himself and he goes, you can go now, in Spanish. And so I hopped in the truck and took off. He didn't lose face, and I didn't go to jail. <laughs> it worked. But see, that's the problem. Even Proverbs says, paying a bribe works. I didn't make it right just because it works. 
And here's the thing. Is it a bribe? And I wonder, if this, is this, is it a bribe? It is. But maybe a better word here is extortion. Ransom. If somebody kidnapped your child, and there was no FBI to call, and there was a ransom note, and all you had was pay the ransom note or your child dies, there's nobody you can call on for justice. Would you pay the ransom? I would. Would you really let your child die? I don't think any of us would. And so when I went through and read all of these verses about bribery, and I think I read them all. You can double check for me and correct me if I'm wrong. I, you know, maybe I am. But I didn't find any verses that were against paying a bribe, except if you were doing it to commit an injustice. So if you're standing before a judge, for example, and you know you're guilty of sin, and you pay the judge to let you off, the Bible condemns that. Or if you're the judge, the Bible condemns you receiving the bribe. So the only bribery I see condemned in Scripture is the bribery of receiving bribes for the sake of doing something that's not right, or paying a bribe in order to get somebody to do something that's not right. But I don't see the Bible condemning a person for being forced to pay a bribe. That's a big part of our world. People are, it is extortion. It is just simple extortion. And they have no choice, it would seem. So, why didn't Paul's friends take up a collection and get money so that Paul can get out? Maybe they did. Here's what I'd have us to consider. I don't know whether they offered money if the friends got together a collection for Paul, but I do believe this. Even if they had, Paul wouldn't have taken the money. And it wasn't because it was ethically wrong, but I believe Paul would have refused to take the money because his release would have been credited to the money and not to Jesus. I think this is, this is the same principle of why Abraham refused to take any of the loot when he went out and conquered the five kings, the four kings that conquered Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other three cities, and he rescued Lot. And the king of Sodom said, take the spoil, just leave us the people. And Abraham says, I won't even take a, 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 the leather strap to tie your sandal on your foot. I will take nothing lest you say you made me rich. He refused to. Could have, but he refused to. The same principle when King Asa cried out to God because there was a million-man army coming against Israel, and God delivered. But then when King Basha in Israel was fortifying the southern, his southern border, Judah's northern border, he didn't like that, and so King Asa calls upon Syria, sends them money to attack Israel from the north so that Basha will stop fortifying his, his, sovereign border, his southern border. It worked. Absolutely worked. wasn't immoral, but God rebuked him and said, you trusted me for a million-man army, but you wouldn't trust me for this, because who gets the credit then for Israel's deliverance? The Syrians do. Asa does, not God. And so there are times when it's, it's wrong, not on principle, but it's wrong because we're not trusting God. 
and therefore God is being robbed of his glory. There are times when people are forced, they are ex through extortion, to pay money, and it is wrong they're being forced to do it. But I don't know that God is holding it against them when they do. But what God, again, if it's, it, God would have us to live in such a way that Jesus is getting all the glory. And if Paul had taken that money, Jesus would not have gotten the glory. And the Lord had told Paul, you're going to witness to me in Rome. And so Paul knew he didn't need any money. God's going to take care of him, even if it looks like years of his life are being wasted. That's God's business. It's not our life. It's his life. And if God wants us to, to apparently waste years, it's God's business. It's not our life. And they weren't wasted years. We don't know what God is accomplishing during this time, but we know that God doesn't waste years. And there's much that God would have been doing this during this time. We just have to take it by faith because God hasn't explained it to us. One thing we do know, Paul's getting an opportunity to witness to people he would have never met otherwise. I heard the bell go off. Paul can be at peace. He will not be killed by Felix or the Jews. Jesus is in control. God can use heathens and their sinful actions to accomplish his will. And let me bring this down to this week, January 20th. Many of us believe January 20th will be a great injustice. It won't be the first time, and it won't be the last time. Pray and be at peace. Remain hopeful. Live righteously. Trust Jesus. The gospel is to believe in Jesus and you will be saved. But many times people need to hear about sin and righteousness and judgment before they'll ever be saved. Beware of thinking that faithfulness on our part always results in blessing. Not necessarily. And beware of just being wanting to listen to good Bible teaching and good theology and not allowing God to stir our hearts and when he does stir our hearts of putting off what the Lord is wanting to say to us. I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you, God, that you are in control. We thank you, God, for just uh, as believers in Jesus especially that we have this day to Remember again the unborn and how precious they are to you, this sanctity of life Sunday as we call it. And we do pray, God, that there just be a great moving of your spirit, that even those who don't know you, Lord, would, would stand up to protect the unborn. We thank you for the wonderful ministry of the um, Pregnancy Center ministry here in Bernie and in Comfort. And we pray, God, for your richest blessings on them and that you would shower them with favor with all the authorities, but also with those young men and women who need help and that they would walk through the doors, God, and look for that help and that they, we know, God, that they will be pointed to Jesus and we pray that your spirit would just give um, conviction and hope and there'd be many that would come to faith in Christ and that these babies would all be saved. 
And I thank you, God, for your work in us and in this world. We face injustice, and Lord, we're, many of us are very, very concerned about what's going on in this country. And we don't want to be complacent, but neither do we want to give up hope. Our hope is in you, Lord. It's not in politicians. And we trust, God, that with all that is happening, you would make us increasingly clear and bold to speak of Jesus, not to be afraid of speaking of sin and righteousness and self-control and judgment, that you would use us, God, by your Spirit, and that as there is conviction brought, that we would also be clear and convicting in giving the hope of Jesus Christ and faith in him. In Christ's name, amen.